Welcome to Split Happens, the Divorce Down Under podcast where we talk about anything and everything family law related. Welcome to Split Happens, the Divorce Down Under podcast with me, Alex, and my legal colleague, Liza. Today we're going to talk about hearings and evidence at hearings. So when I'm talking about hearings, I'm meaning uh, heading off to court in relation to family law matters, because that's what we talk about here. And the primary um, courts that we go to these days are what is called the Federal Circuit and Family Court of Australia. So, Liza, court hearings, maybe you could start us off, because you're an ex-barrister, by running us through what a typical court hearing might look like if it's the final hearing. If it's the final hearing, you've parties have served all their evidence and they've also um, put forward what we call case outlines, which is just a, a summary of what the court, what your case is, so that the court can understand a little snippet about what the case is going to be about. Um, and when you get to court on the day, the judge um, that's hearing your matter will... Um, usually deal with a few housekeeping matters, making sure that everyone's ready to go and that the witnesses are there. And then what we'll do, what they'll do is they'll have um, a brief opening from the parties, from the parties' lawyers, whether it be a barrister appearing on their behalf or just their solicitors. Just their solicitors, she says. Just their solicitors. <laughs> well, we yeah. all go to the same law school. We'll do the same law degrees. Well, it's um, I meant singularly, not. Um, not, you don't hear from both counsel and solicitor. It's no. just one party will talk. So the, the barrister usually at a final hearing will give a bit of an opening and tell the court a bit about what's what the matter is going to be about. Um, and then once those initial openings have been dealt with, the court will then um, call or your, the applicant will call evidence. Um, so the applicant goes first. They go first. Whoever the applicant is. So whoever made that application, brought the application, right. is the applicant. And in that case, that person will be going first and they'll also have to give evidence first. And right. now your evidence has been prepared. Yeah, you, you said that, uh, that you've, you've submitted all of the evidence. So yep. what does that mean, you've submitted all of the evidence? Because I think we have a, a misconception sometimes from so many of the TV shows that we get here in Australia uh, from you the States. You can't handle the truth. You can't. That's right. Sorry, I'm not, I had to say that. I'm not doing my Jack Nicholson today. <laughs> I, I'm more like the Jack Nicholson we all saw on social media the other day, sort of stumbling around. Oh, on, that one. I did yeah, see on the that. Balcony. Wow. Poor <laughs> fellow. That's me. Um, but with the evidence then, what form does that take? And we've submitted it. How have we submitted it? What yeah, does it look so like? it's normally in the form of an affidavit. So um, everyone has... That sounds like an old Latin phrase, which I know it is. Yeah, so um, I've seen a few different versions of the spelling of affidavit in my time, um, but it's actually just a sworn statement. Yeah. And it, you attach all the documents that you want to um, put forward before the court. Um, they're called annexures, and if there's a lot of annexures or depending on um, the type of documents, you might want to have a folder that you exhibit and you hand up with your right. affidavit so if, on if, the day. If it's going to be really voluminous, the number yep. of documents, so you get your sworn statement, that's your affidavit, and the documents themselves, if there's a lot, they're probably better off being kept separate and out of your affidavit. That's right, and you have what we call either an exhibit or a tender bundle. Mm. And so those documents all go before the court. And when I say go before the court, they're physically handed to the court because 
in this day and age, um, although there is electronic filing, and so a lot of the time there'll be um, there'll, all the documents will be stored on the court portal. Um, the judges will still want a hard copy so that they can make notes and and follow through. It's easier to scribble on a piece of paper, isn't That's it? That's right. Put your post-it notes on those. Although, I mean, electronic trials are a thing. They are happening now and they're becoming more and more prevalent. But so the, the recent trials that you and I have been in, I know they've been predominantly paper-based trials. They are, yeah. Okay. So, so, so you the, the, once you've, the court's received that evidence, um, you have to have that evidence read now, that's just a, a lawyer way of saying that the court's receiving that evidence, the court is accepting it, because until such time as the evidence is read, um, then the it's not actually evidence. We use the word evidence, but it's really just a statement. It's really just an affidavit. It's what you're proposing to put forward as evidence. It's not accepted as evidence. Right. So it's what you say happened in that's a sworn right. statement but at that moment in time the court hasn't agreed with you it's just said okay well that's what you say and the other person is going to have their own say presumably that's right so once the evidence once the material is read then it becomes your evidence okay um, <laughs> being a pedant because I, I i know what you mean by when the evidence is read but a, a, a listener who doesn't do this sort of stuff all the time think what does it mean Would, does somebody just sit down and we just wait until the judge reads every single scrap of paper inside the courtroom or what does that mean well normally um the court will, ha- the judge will have actually read the affidavit beforehand, or if they haven't, then once you, the lawyer, whether it be the barrister or the solicitor, will say, "I read the affidavit of Alex Wynn, sworn blah blah blah," and the um, and then if the court hasn't, if the judge hasn't already read it, physically read that document, then time will be set aside for the the court to actually read through that material. Right. So the process of telling the court that you know you read the affidavit of Fred Bloggs or Joe Smith or whoever means that we want the court to have read that evidence to or to have read our version of the evidence. That's correct. So that we can then rely upon that. Yep. Okay, so you know, I'm in the witness box and you just sort of said, Okay, I'm gonna read the affidavit of Alex and what happens next? Well, at a final hearing, um, we we give some th- your own lawyer will probably, if you're the witness that's going in, your own lawyer is going to give you some introductory questions just to make you feel a bit more comfortable about being in the witness box because it is quite a daunting experience. So just just confirming that, you know, what your name is, your address, date of birth, and that you've sworn an affidavit um, or affirmed an affidavit, which is the one that we've just referred to. Yeah. Um, and then, so provided that that's all okay and there's no changes, because it's sometimes an opportunity to make some changes if there's been an error or a typo. Or, yeah, something's changed. And I, I, I said something in my statement that was sworn a few weeks ago or affirmed a few weeks ago, and that's no longer true. So that's I, I'd need to yeah. say, actually, that paragraph's wrong. Or Yeah, and so it's a time to actually fix some things up if you need to. Try not to fix anything up unless it's absolutely necessary. <laughs> um, that's right. Because it creates a bit of a... Um, a trap later on but then what happens is is the other party's lawyer they will have the opportunity to test that evidence in the form of what we call cross-examination and that's the barristers art really isn't it um, specialist advocates that they are barristers spend a lot of time developing their skills in eliciting the answers that they are seeking that you wouldn't as a witness necessarily want to give that's right so how does that work then from i mean from Tales of the trenches then. So how would you go about cross-examining somebody? Well, what the first thing I, I need to know is I need to know what my case is and what, what am I trying to prove and what am I trying to get out of this witness. 
am I trying to discredit the witness? Am I trying to um, show that they're lying? Am I trying to simply just um, run through the motions and deal with their evidence because it, their evidence doesn't bother me? My client might be the one that has um, where all the where the case is is going to be determined. It might be in their evidence. So it, it depends on what my purpose is with the other party. But in in most cases. I will be trying to discredit, either discredit that witness or I will be um, trying to make it so that at least his evidence is un- or her evidence is unreliable in some way or that there's been, been some inconsistencies or things like that. So, It's quite a, a difficult path to tread, isn't it? Because you don't want to upset the judge by being deliberately obtuse or rude to somebody who is giving their time and they may not be a party, they could be another witness. By attacking them... And if you do it in a, in a blatant and personal way, then that can put the judge on the wrong side. That's Where right. The idea must be to go to the facts of the things that they have said and sort of challenge them to create some um, the, the doubt in the mind of the of the judge or yeah, whoever's hearing the case. And that, and that's what you have to do. It's it's basically planting those seeds of doubt in the in the um, in the judge's mind because um, you've got your version, your client's version, and. You have to put that version to them. It's as a matter of fairness, they have to be given that opportunity to say yes or no. I agree with that, or I don't agree with that. Um, one thing that the cross examiner will rarely do is ask that witness um, why that is their position, because um, from the cross examiner's point of view, we don't want to know why you believe a certain thing. We just want to know what your answer is. If you're going to agree with us, agree. If you don't want to agree, then don't agree. Um, you know, that's that's really we don't want the the witness to talk too much. We want to um, we want to be able to achieve what we what we have set out, whether it be to discredit or obtain concession, concessions from that witness. Yeah. So, so changing changing tack then for a hmm. for a second or changing perspective. Um, if you are the witness, and, and I have been a witness in many court cases in the past. Uh, I refuse to be a witness. <laughs> I, I, I had the joyful um, pleasure of being cross-examined for nearly three days by two self-represented parties. and it, it That would have been hilarious. It, it was hysterical. And, and the <laughs> counsel that we had briefed in that case kept making eye contact and just rolling his eyes and putting funny little cartoons together. And, but, and I couldn't talk to them, of course, for two or three no. days. Um, so it's a great deal of fun being a witness, but it's not really. You have to listen very carefully to the question asked and just answer that question as truthfully and succinctly as you can. That's usually what I advise my clients to do if, if they're being asked a question. Yeah, you do. And because um, what happens is the more you talk, the more fodder you've given the cross-examiner because it's like, oh, I didn't know that. Where, where, can, we ta- where can we go with this? Um, and there have been plenty of times where I've um, you know, asked a very simple question, It's which in most cases would require a yes or no answer from a witness and they've just gone and given me this, you know, um, diatribe of absolute what they're really thinking and how Somewhere much they, you know, and it's so out of left field and you think, okay, great. Well, I didn't know that you hated the mother so much. You know, brilliant, isn't it? Thanks very much for all the extra information. I'm just going to destroy you your case now. Yeah, now I'm going to ask you more about that. Is that what your real? Is that your real motivation behind all this? Are you doing this to continue to um, inflict abuse? Is this why you're doing this? And yeah. you know, it, it then becomes relevant, and then it becomes um, something that the judges they're going to be um, listening to. Yeah, and, and thinking, and okay, what what's really going on here? 
And the, the mannerisms, I think, of the witness are, are that's a, it's a very important part of the job of a judge at first instance, by which I mean the person who's um, running the court at, you know, for the first decision, the trial. The looking at the mannerisms and the body language and mm. the tone of voice, all of those things are part of the weighing up process as to who's telling the truth, who's not telling the truth, or, or whose who's version of events is probably closer to the approximation of what actually happened. Certainly I've um, seen many clients who are very eloquent when you're talking to them and they sit in the, the witness uh, box and they're like a rabbit in the headlights and they say hardly anything. And other people who are quiet and don't say very much, they just, as you say, start rabbiting on and you think, yeah. please, please shut up. Yeah. Please uh, when, stop when laughing. Your, don't laugh in the courtroom. Yeah. Well, when it's your own client that's in there doing that, that's where you bury your head and think, God, get me out of here and just wish that my client would shut up. But, um, Somebody have a heart attack quickly. Yeah, yeah we need it. we need a fire alarm. <laughs> no, no one do that, please. Don't do that. Uh, no, no. Um, I, I should have said at the start of this podcast. Of course, <laughs> none of this is advice. This is just Liza and Alex just having a general chinwag about you know the, the land of family law and, and in particular but today hearings. I had one um, fairly recently, and the fellow was in the witness box, and I was cross examining him, and he was sounding quite okay. You know, his answers were were being you know as you say quite eloquent. Um, they were well thought out but you could tell that he was nervous and he was really he wasn't happy and there was some there was a few things that just weren't going going his way with some of the questions that I was asking um, because he was forced to make concessions and when you just keep gr- uh, grilling them and keep on them to try and get that concession um, you can see that they're not comfortable about it but one thing that is is um, that the your lawyer really needs to be wary of is that body language that comes across from the from the witness so this fellow he was there putting his fingers down in his top collar you know trying to you know stretch his um stretch his shirt trying to get air you could tell that he was all the stress yeah you don't see don't see beads of sweat on a transcript <coughs> later on you, do you don't and so so i purposely said i said are, are you are you uncomfortable you keep you know stretching your shirt collar sneaky you know, counsel trick there yeah so you're re- putting you're it ref- onto the, onto the record, onto the record. <laughs> that he is clearly um uncomfortable and you know reluctantly giving that evidence because when you when you go through and you'll read the transcript that yeah okay it took me about three or four goes to get the yes response that i wanted out of him um it it doesn't look like it was much of a fight, whereas this guy is just openly he's very resistant. And yeah. and when you read that, then it becomes it becomes quite apparent because if parties want to appeal it, then the court of appeal only has the the transcript really yeah. to go by. They don't have a video recording no, of no. They don't listen and they don't watch. No. us. they read what was said. So you know, especially when there's someone that's sort of got this smile or they're smirking away, and, and I always I'll always say something funny. Yes, it, you know, yes. I love I, I, doing that. It it happens more often than than you would imagine. You know, there's something funny. You want to let us in on the joke. So, uh, but anyway, <coughs> so that's cross examination. Um, I think famously, it's you know when you the art of cross examination is is not to examine crossly. So you you as counsel keep your temper and you try and get a rise out of the person that's answering the questions if you can. We, we try that. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. There are other ways that uh, evidence comes into court, though. So you've got somebody, they have their affidavit read, and then they are cross-examined. And sometimes if they've made a bit of a, a fluff-up of it, your own barrister might then get a chance to sort of say, just put you back on point and correct a couple of things afterwards. But sometimes people um, introduce documents, you mentioned those, as tender bundles, and mm-hmm. other things as well, you know, like uh, a 
audio recordings and, and videos. I mean, we live in this this age when you know we're surrounded by smart, smartphones and dumb operators, where we have the technology in our hands to take fabulous video footage of anything or to record people surreptitiously. And where does the court stand on that? That's a <clears throat> that's a case by case basis. Now, all of, all of the states have their own individual rules about what's permissible about recording someone. But if you look at it this way, is it something that is going to actually assist your case? Is this really clear evidence of something that is going on that is re- irrelevant, that is relevant, I should say, to an, an issue that needs to be determined by this particular court at this time? Right. So... So you've, actually, I'll come back to that because you've mentioned the, re- the word relevance and that's really important yep. in some of this. But So going back to a recording, let, let's say that um, for, we're talking about family law cases. You know, I'm getting frustrated by you know, my ex every time you know, we swap over the children between us. Um, say she's screaming at me and saying these horrible things at me. So I decide I'm just going to record these because she says these horrible things to me and then later on she'll send me an email saying, why were you so mean to me? That classic kind of, you know saying one thing and doing something else altogether. Yep. So how would a court treat that kind of recording? If I'm recording it, let's, let's say I'm doing it just so I've got my own record of what this conversation was. If, it's rel- if, if the, it is a crucial matter that the court needs to determine, then the, mo- then the court's most likely going to accept that and receive that um, material into evidence, despite it being improperly or illegally obtained. Because... In most cases, you're not meant to record someone without their permission. Um, that's why, in as I said, it varies from state to state, but you'll need. I think the in, que- in Queensland you can. <coughs> I think the, the invasion of pro- I know New South Wales the rules might be slightly different, but in Queensland the rule goes something like this, and uh, no, no doubt any sort of privacy lawyers will be you know, they can jump onto the email and tell me how wrong I am. But the Invasion of Privacy Act here I think means that you can record your end of the conversation. You don't necessarily require permission but you would require permission to publish it subsequently that's of the right. other person um, and, and so then when you're putting that that material forward as ev- evidence is that publishing that's the that's going to be the yeah. question then yeah um yes you may record it for your own benefit but yeah is that really I, but then when you go to try and use that it's the same sort of principle as when you sign a confidentiality agreement um and you learn things in a mediation where you can um, you'll, you'll learn things and you've said, no, I'm not going to use that, but it's hard to not know something. And it's the it's same with a, a recording. Unknow, yeah. It's the same with the recording. It's like how do you then get that into admiss- something that's ad- in, ad- in an admissible format? And I think that what the courts really look at, and there's a phrase um, that you'll hear judges and lawyers use a lot, it's what the probative value is of that evidence, meaning yeah. how important is it to your case? So say, for example, it's a recording of um, of someone um, just yelling in the background or, or and it, it's not quite clear what they're yelling about, whether they're yelling, uh, yelling to you or at you or if there's some uncertainty about what it is that you're trying to um, achieve by that evidence. The, the court's unlikely to receive that and say that's that's a good piece of evidence. Mm. And we don't think that, that there's a real um, chance that that particular evidence is going to affect the outcome of your case. So so by probative value, you mean the, the extent to which this is actually going to influence anything? Yeah, that's right. So that's the, that's the number one thing that 
courts will look at when we're looking at what the um, whether or not the evidence can be admitted into a court. Arben Legal is proud to sponsor Split Happens. You will be in safe hands with Arben Legal. For all your family law needs, call us on 07 or visit our website at arbanlegal.com.au. Now, let's talk then a little bit about the rules of evidence, which is a dusty and dry old topic that we, we as solicitors and, and barristers and, and as law students back in the day will all have studied and study and, and yep. be mindful of all the time. The rules of evidence are a series of rules that developed over centuries in the common law and they've now been enshrined in things like the Evidence Act in, in the, yep. co- the Commonwealth here. So can you maybe rattle through the, you know, the big pieces of what the rules of evidence are, the main rules? Yes, yeah, so the very first rule is about relevance. And the evidence must be relevant to a fact in issue. So not something that is relevant to you, um, to what you think is important. So you might be annoyed that your husband has had an affair and therefore you want to go through and talk about all those things relating to the affair. That might be relevant to the stage that you're going through in your life, but it's not necessarily relevant to the fact that needs to be determined because we're dealing with a a no-fault system. Yeah, so if, you, if, if if this is a property case, it's just about working out who's going to keep what house or, or just divide the bank accounts up, then brutally it doesn't really matter who the transgressor was inside the emotional, interpersonal right. relationship. That's not relevant. Yep. Unless in having the affair it's caused, you know, huge amounts of money to be shifted away you know, to pay to the, you know, the mistress or the, or, the, yeah. or the other bloke. That's right. Well, yeah. Or whatever. Whichever way. Um Whichever, whichever path you wish to take. Um, so in terms of the, the next step, though, is if you've determined that the evidence is relevant, yep. then you look at the admissibility of that, uh, that evidence. Okay, so admissible evidence is stuff the court's going to listen to and inadmissible evidence is stuff the court's That's going right. to say, not, the, not, we're not going to entertain this. Yeah, because if it's inadmissible, it's inadmissible for a number of reasons. And a lot of the time it's to do, to do with things like it's not really the best form of the evidence. It's not the evidence is unreliable. There's some problems with it, and it, it makes it it brings it brings about a really unfair situation if you have um, inadmissible evidence being led before a court. So that's why th- that you have this rule in the first place. It's to it's designed to protect people from or pr- basically protect you from having the court listen to stuff that just doesn't count and shouldn't count for a range of reasons. Okay, so what might be a reason that something is inadmissible? So the first one is hearsay. Now, that's a legal term that I reckon oh, a lot of lawyers would probably even get it wrong half the time. <laughs> um, it's something that people seem to struggle with that concept. But in short, hearsay is where it's something that you've heard from someone else that you did not see or hear yourself. And yet you, ste- you seek to rely upon it as yeah. being truthful, the statement. So, so I'll give you an example because I think that's probably the easiest way to try and explain it. So say, for example, there's an issue in a case, a parenting case, where um, whether the dad was taking drugs while the kids were in his care. And so inadmissible evidence might be mum's affidavit saying, 
My sister told me that John was using illicit drugs um, when he had the kids on Saturday night. Now, that's inadmissible. Okay, that's hearsay. That's because mum wasn't there. Mum can't say that. Mum does not know whether John was taking drugs or anything like that on Saturday night. So that's just inadmissible evidence. Yeah. So the preferred way to prove that would be to get evidence from the sister who yeah. is the one who says it. Give direct evidence. And to give direct evidence. And you call it, call evidence from the sister who says something like, well, when I went to collect the children from John on Saturday night, I saw drug paraphernalia in the lounge room sitting beside the children. Um, something along those lines. So it looks – so it – then the court can draw those inferences. Because well, it's got another witness to assess then, hasn't it? Say, so is the sister a credible witness? Does what she's saying sound you know, truthful? Yeah, and, and then it's up to the court, it's up to that judge to be able to draw those inferences and say, well, from these facts, I'd, I conclude that he probably was taking drugs or was affected by drugs around the time that the kids were in his care because of these reasons, because... The sister saw the drug paraphernalia in the lounge room. It's like it's like what was that game? Cluedo, mm-hmm. Professor Plum with the candlestick. Yeah, you know, it's so the sister. Sister with the, with the bong in the lounge. With the bong in the lounge next to the kids. So of course, conversely, <coughs> and, and I wouldn't want any listeners to think that just because you get a separate person to give that evidence, which you can't give yourself because it would be hearsay. It doesn't necessarily automatically give credibility to that witness because they might be a terrible witness themselves, and the court might go. Sure, you've just put a stooge up there to say the thing that you want to be said, and I don't believe right. it anyway. So there's and and the counsel on the other side will have plenty of opportunity to to challenge them through cross examination. But so hearsay, yeah. No, there are some exceptions though, aren't there, with some of these admissible rules? But are we talking in particular, as we mentioned there, about the children? Yeah. In children's cases in the Family Law Act here. So in under the Family Law Act, um, there's a rule. There's a there's a section. I think it's 69, I'm going to get it wrong, aren't I? 69ZT. No, you're right. I'm right. Wow, excellent. Um, 69ZT deals with um, what's how the Evidence Act is to apply or not apply in relation to child-related proceedings. So when we say child-related proceedings, we're talking about um, when we're talking about orders for living and spending time with parenting the kids. Orders. Parenting orders. Yeah, so just because children are involved in a relationship, if your case is about money with the other person, then typically the rules of evidence are going to apply. We're really talking only about parenting cases. Yeah. So in in the parenting cases, it's really up to the court as to whether or not um, the the rules of evidence are going to apply or not because the Act says that they're not to apply, but sometimes there's an advantage by asking the court for those rules to apply, particularly if you have any doubts about... Um, the credibility of the other party or the intentions or if you know that you have much better evidence or they have a sometimes people you, you you know just through dealing with them that they have this bit of a tendency to just make stuff up all the time they're they're the type to fabricate their own evidence to send their own send themselves emails or something that makes it you know that they're going to bolster that their case in some way. So what you really want to do, if you've if you've got someone that's a bit more manipulative and a bit more deceitful on the other side, um, at that first directions hearing when the matter's before the court, you can say to the court, I think this is an appropriate case where the rules of evidence need to apply. Yep. The court's unlikely to give any sort of response 
at that point in time. But what you've done is you've flagged it from the outset. And when it, as it gets closer, and if the matter does in fact go towards a, a final hearing, it may be that the court will require, for example, um, some doc, you know, proper proof of of, th- of events having occurred or not occurred. Um, you know, having to prove so from do- third parties and yep. you know extrinsic evidence going back to those document bundles we talked about earlier. That's right. Show me. You say that these things happen, but you've got nothing to corroborate this. Show That's me. That's right. And so it makes the courts. The reason why you do that is that it makes the court's job, the judge's job, a lot easier because they then have, they've got a a level playing field for both parties that they can say, right, well, you've known what the rules are from the start and this is what you need to do. This is what you're going to need to do to prove your case. If you want to say this, then you have to, you have to show these things. And so that's why it's really important that you, you have that plan from the outset and understand and mainly your lawyer will need to know and if they don't know the rules of evidence, get a new lawyer. That's basically – you've got to have a lawyer who understands the rules and how to use them to your advantage because they're there. And even though the, the Family Law Act will say that in child-related proceedings all these particular rules don't apply, there yeah. are still some – like, for example, the court's control over questioning and – And the courts still have discretion over the application have, of those rules. So. They do. And in my experience recently – um, the judges have actually been insist- insisting, even without having made any formal directions, saying that the rules either do or don't apply. They've been just uh, just been applying the rules of evidence. They've been applying those rules about hearsay. You know, they've been tearing strips off people for off um, lawyers for not having um, the content of conversations in affidavit material for. Um, being not in, in what we call an admissible form, being yeah. you know direct speech, so that to overcome that hearsay rule. Yeah, so writing in an affidavit, and then we had a conversation and John told me this and that and the other thing. Mm. It, it's not proper evidence. It needs to be, uh, on such and such a date, he said these words to me. Yeah. And then repeat exactly what your memory yeah, of the words were. Right. Yeah. And And if you don't know, then there is no evidence. If you can't, if you cannot say with any particularity what the conversation was, what the content of that conversation was, well, that's not your, evidence. Your best hope is to say, I can remember having a conversation and the impression I came away with was this, but I can't remember the words that were spoken. It's really weak. It is, but yeah. But it's probably better than saying nothing at all. That's right. Because it just th- it, there is a tiny crumb on the table there. But so the moment that, um, that someone says that this is the impression that I got. I can't really remember. That's the barrister's oh, field I, I know, day on your, the other your side. I'm, arched. I'm, I'm just sitting here, <laughs> sitting on the edge going, right, can't wait to pounce on that one. Any other impressions you'd like to tell me about? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay. yeah, so, so that's where we're at. It was a really interesting comment you made a couple of minutes ago, uh, and it sort of brings us back to where we came into this discussion, which is the outline of a case. Mm which is one of the starting points at the beginning of the case where the, you know, the counsel, the barrister for each party will say he, it will already have been prepared. It will be a written document that says, here's the outcome that we want and these are the reasons why we want it and this is what the evidence will show. When you come through the case, you, working your way through that hearing, it's always helpful to be constantly mindful of what it is you're trying to achieve by having that case outline going. And then the other expression you said was, to make the judge's job easier. Now, I think that's critical because if you have your case run in such a way that your your client's position is uncertain um, or you are uh, 
fluffing around with the evidence. There's no clarity about it. You're making their job difficult. And, you know, they're busy officers of the court and they've got a lot of other things they need to be doing. And, and having to you know, manage people who should know how to manage their cases is not something that's going to put them on side. So if you're the person that's presenting clear evidence, preferably, I, I agree with you, following wherever possible the rules of evidence, except where it's you know, a truly mm. exceptional matter, uh, is the way to proceed. Well, that's um, I, if, if I was a party in a proceeding, there is no way. I would not worry about the fact that oh, yeah, well, we might be able to get away with this. We can throw this in. I'd be too concerned. Um, if, if I'm putting an opinion into, like, my own personal opinion, like, I think that John's a bad parent, mm. how is that relevant? Well... That's the very first question. Regardless of whether the rules of evidence apply, how is your opinion of someone else relevant? Well, here we're talking about experts. Or you're going to move no. on to experts. Yeah, because what makes that person an expert? Well, I don't know. Probably not a parent. But I'm, the, I'm a party, though. That's what I'm saying. I'm yeah. a party. I'm just mum in the proceeding. I think that John's a bad... I think John, who's dad, is a bad parent. You know, And so this is where... Does regardless, mums? regardless of these rules of evidence of whether they apply or don't apply, you get back to that fundamental question: Is my opinion of what John does or doesn't do? Sorry, not what he does or doesn't do as a parent. That's a different question. Whether I think that he's a good parent or a bad parent is that relevant? Well, and a, my a qualitative opinion from a party is mm. very, very, very rarely going to be you know, relevant or admissible, mm. unless, of course, they were by some kind of profession trade. Um, a family consultant yes. approved by the Attorney General's <laughs> office and they happen to be in the, in, the, in the family court squabbling over parenting issues. Heaven forfend that would happen. But the, uh, the delivery of an opinion uh, can still be relevant. Yeah, and, it can. But it has to be delivered by what we would call a court expert. So what sort of people would they be? Oh, so you've got your family consultants, psychiatrists and psychologists, um, in children's matters, you've got valuers, you've got forensic accountants, things so like that. These are all specialist matters. professions, they aren't are. they, who come to answer a particular question yep. that might be at odds between the parties. So in order to be an expert, they actually have to have some kind of specialised knowledge in a particular field that's relevant to the case, to and the to the issue, I should say, that's in dispute. And typically a court would have appointed them prior to the final hearing anyway by... You know, by an order. By an order in yeah. one of the interlocutory steps. Yeah, we yeah. need a family report here. We're going to appoint you know, Mr X or Miss Y to prepare that report and they then become the court expert and their opinion then becomes evidence. Yeah, that's right. But don't just go and get your own... Um, you know, I, I see all the time I go uh, that clients will go and get their own psychologist to prepare a report on them and they attach it to their affidavit. That's not evidence and it's not going to be admissible. That report of that psychologist, if they're going to purporting to be an expert, they need to do a couple of things. And the first thing they need to do is they need to set out that, that they've got this specialised knowledge. They need to set out their resume, things like that. They need to set out the facts upon which their opinion is based so that the court can say, well, okay, there's been proper reasoning applied here and this is why they think that the expert opinion should be accepted because just because they're an expert they're not necessarily going to be accepted no um particularly if they don't haven't set out those facts and i suppose it's also the case that experts opinions are, are, are simply still that yeah and they, they are all subject to a challenge uh, by you know, right. you know if you have you know your erudite counsel can always ask questions if a family report writer for example makes a series of recommendations, but they hadn't realised a certain set of circumstances. They hadn't known about an event that had occurred. 
the questions can be posed to them. Well, Would that's... your opinion change if you knew this? Um, and of course, you know, there's, there's an old case, Hall and Hall, isn't there, which simply says that there is no magic in a family report. It's just one piece of evidence that is before. Well, that's the how court. I always I always challenge the family report writer on that basis. I say, well, okay, let's assume these facts for a moment, and if they because because at that point, when you're um, when the family report writer is is in the witness box, because most times, unless the parties all agree about the findings of and recommendations of the report writer, which is rare. Um, if they do, they've probably already settled. They've the already case. settled the case, but um, if if that happens, then one party in particular is one. Their counsel is going to be um, cross examining that report writer, and at that stage of the proceeding, the court has not made findings of fact as to what has actually happened in this case. They haven't accepted one party's version over the other. It's still all up in the air. So just because the family report writer has written. I'm making these recommendations based on these facts. It may be that the report writer has simply just adopted the facts as per one of the parties' version of events. Yeah. But if yeah. the if the court decides to accept the other party's version, so it's really important that you put that your counsel put um, that information and those that's that version of events to mm. the family report writer and say, well, what would your recommendation be in this situation? Assume these facts: A, B, C, D, and E. Yeah. And that's how you cross-examine a report writer. It's not like you're trying to discredit these family report writers because they're all doing a job. And it's more about the whole purpose of, of, of these experts. It's not so much to um, discredit. It's more, though, to get the concessions in line with what you want their evidence to say rather than you yeah. know, attacking and them. To open up their the possibility of accepting your client's case. That's right. As far as the judge is concerned. Yep. Well, Liza, I think we've we've about run out of time to go through much more on you know, running a hearing and evidence and the rules of evidence and, and all of the joyous things that come from that study. Uh, so thank you very much indeed. And Not a problem. Thank you to anybody who has listened in. Much appreciated as always. Let us know any comments or feedback do appreciate that and thanks very much for listening to split happens the divorce down under podcast thanks for listening to split happens the divorce down under podcast if you want to hear more of our episodes you'll find us wherever you find your podcasts on all good platforms